Hello and welcome to Husky Talk. We are your hosts, Ariana, Chase, Brylin, and Matthew. Our guest today grew up in Iowa and moved to Alaska in 2013. He has handled for Matt Hall and Ryan Olsen. He now has his own kennel, Dark Horse Racing Kennel. Please welcome to the show, Riley Dyke. Hello and welcome to Husky Talk. No, no, Sorry. Hey Riley, thank you for joining us today. Can you tell us how to pronounce your last name so we get it right? My name Dyke. Riley Dyke. Okay, thank you. So we noticed you are from Iowa. Yep. We are from. I'm, yeah, I'm from Shenandoah, Iowa. Farragut, Iowa. Nice. We're from Iowa too. That's great. Before we start our interview with you, we are going to test your Iditarod knowledge. We have five Iditarod trivia questions for you. Ready? All right, go ahead. Who was the first female champion for the Iditarod? You're a little broken, but I think you asked the first female muster to win the Iditarod. That was Libby Yes. Correct. What is the halfway checkpoint for the northern route? For the northern route? Yes. Is it Ruby or Ofer? No, the answer is Cripple. Oh. How many minutes apart do mushers start? We're not too uh, concerned about that 500-mile mark. We're more concerned with uh, mandatory arrest. <laughs> but we start two-minute intervals. Correct. What was used for the very first finish line? What was that? What was used for the very first finish line? Uh, I don't know what the first finish line was. It was Kool-Aid. Oh. Who has the fastest finish time? Um, it was down because probably Mitch the last time it went. The northern route, eight days, three hours. Yep, you're correct. Good job on the trivia. You were three out of five. Now on to find out a little bit about you. Talk to us about what made you want to start dog racing. I started running dogs in Leadville, Colorado in 2010. I went to college there working for a tour company, and I was just bird dogs growing up at Brittany Spaniels and Iowa. Really liked but dogs. They always really liked dogs and then started working get dog sled tours. Led Colorado was pretty hooked right away so after a couple winters there I wanted to do Alaska to get into the more serious fishing. You said so you did. Twelve. You said you did some work in Colorado as a tour guide. Talk to us about what that was like. Oh, we gave five mile or so, maybe seven mile dog sled tours in a in a wide open valley below some mountains. We're at thousand feet, really high in elevation. Um, so it's quite cold there. Also, the sun exposure high too. When you get to those high elevation, the sun is very bright, hard on your skin. So it was a uh, had a lot of things Alaska has, um, cold and, and extreme weather fluctuation, 20 below in the morning and 20 above in the afternoon. Um, but it was a 
a good experience, but the knowledge base for mushing is relatively low in Colorado compared to Alaska. So I moved Alaska to kind of learn everything I could in Colorado. Nice. So you were a rookie this year in the Iditarod, but you had experience in the 1,000-mile distance. You finished 11th in the Yukon Quest. Sorry, you're, bra you're breaking up a little bit. I'm a rookie in the Iditarod, but... But you have experience in the 1,000-mile distance. You finished 11th in the Yukon Quest in 2018. Talk about that experience. Um, the quest is also a thousand miles, as you just said, and I already know, um, but it is quite different. It's uh, typically a much older race, um, and the terrain is overall, I think, a little bit hillier. Most mushers who have run both generally agree that the quest is terrain wise a little harder, as well as ending with extreme cold. When I ran, it was negative 40 to negative 60 for eight days of the race, which is unlikely we'll see the cold temperatures in the Idabra. But the Idabra, you have to deal with wind storms on the coast and uh, going over the Alaska range in the beginning, which is not that difficult climbing-wise. It's very, very technical and dangerous, uh, difficult driving from sleds. It's a little bit tougher driving than you'd see in the quad. Uh, um, so the quest was was a good learning experience because it was extremely cold and then it warmed up extremely warm at the end of the race. It went from negative 50 to pretty above in about a 16-hour period um, towards the end of the race. So that was a big learning experience there for my dogs, those extreme fluctuations, um, and myself. A lot of self-care to take care of yourself. Below zero, especially with the quest having long, long remote stretches. We see in the end of the There's three stretches that are miles or longer on the Yukon Quest, so you're you're really out there alone. So it made me a much much better musher in the regard of being able to know I can contain myself and my team without resupply support, which I think will be beneficial in the end which is although some say not as tough terrain-wise, it is much, really much more competition. But, um, obviously, with the more notarized name, a lot it attracts a lot more competitors, so it's a little bit stiffer comp. I'd be very happy if I could get 11. Yeah, I did around. We'll see. Thanks. That year you also won the Sportsmanship Award. Can you tell us how you earned this award and what it means to you? Yeah, so when we're on the trail, especially in 1,000-mile races or on the long stretches on the press, like I said, there's not a lot of support. We don't have a checkpoint every 40 miles. We're going, you know, multiple days on some of this without without being able to refill our supplies or anything like that. Um, there are some hospitality stops, cabin, medicine, but mushers uh, being able to, even though we're competitors, it is very much a survival situation. So the priority is always us, you know, making sure we're safe. 
also means making sure our competitors are safe. So beat somebody that's in a maybe a tough situation, dogs to go, or they're they're running out of dog. They didn't they underestimated the distance and they didn't pack enough food for themselves or enough food for their dogs. As runs, it's really important to help each other out. It is that a survival situation with somebody out there with put themselves or their dogs in actual real danger. So um, there is a few there's on the quest where there's a lot of camaraderie on the quest because of those long stretches I get with your fellow mushers. So um, I, I helped one musher get going when her dogs wouldn't go. I gave her a toe, led her for a while until her dogs would go on their own um, on the way to Brayburn, which is the last checkpoint. The quest when it runs from Fairbanks to Whitehorse. Um, I and then on that same stretch to Brayburn, uh, closer to Brayburn, there's a really long stretch overflow, which is uh, essentially open water. So it happens when water is pressured up through the ice and uh, due to temperature fluctuations. So it warmed up a lot. So even though it's still freezing. There is about four, three to four foot deep water for about 200 yards, which is quite deep for a really long ways. A dog sled trail it was later rerouted, but myself and others had to go through that. And I helped uh, Luke Tweedle, a fellow musher. We kind of helped each other. He got help get my through, and then I, I tied my team off securely once we were through the water, and he was actually headed the opposite direction to the fence line. I was headed into the backland. He was headed out. It was a common trail, so it goes both directions right there. So I, after I secured my team, I helped him unhook all his dogs, and just and we drug his sled through by hand um, while he let all his dogs on the water. We worked together on that. Um, and then I traveled. That big reason I, I got that award is actually because of my friend Rob Cook kind of nominated me. The musher, we vote for who gets the sportsmanship award in a post-race meeting. We all sit together in a room and discuss uh, events of the race, the race marshals, judges, and that team, and just talk about things we were happy with and things improve, improve upon and, and tell stories about the trail and uh, then we vote together. Rob really nominated me for the sportsman's award. We, we traveled together a long time. And he he said that he it was a big reason he finished the race. My attitude was really positive when we traveled together. That uh, that got a lot of votes for me. So I, I owe a lot of credit to Rob for uh, saying that in the meeting. Your kennel name is Dark Horse Racing. Is there a special meaning behind the name? Um, a little bit. So, dark horse is a, a for, you know, any an underdog in any sporting event that is, you know, capable of, of winning. Like you could say, maybe Vikings are a dark horse, in the, or Titans are a dark horse in the playoff. They, you know, are a nine and seven team, but they Patriots. So, um, no one really expected them to be where they are right now, but they really look like a really good team. Um. So that's that's the meaning of dark horse. You'll hear it anytime they're talking about mushing and things. Uh, I actually got the name. I came up with the my kennel because I was just starting kennel, and I really didn't have any 
solid good ideas for a name. I was tossing about a dozen different ideas. Um, and I was talking with my friend Tom Olson, who is uh, Ryan Olson, who's a quest, and I did our sure. Tom is Ryan's younger brother, and uh, I was talking with him, and we were talking about my dog, Nep, who's the mom to a lot of my kids now. She first leaders, and Ryan had just borrowed her and used her in, a, in the Quest 300. Really liked her, and Tom said, wow, you got, you really got a dark horse when you bought Neptune. Um, uh, kind of triggered something, and I really liked that term when he spit is kind of stuck. It's a really good idea for a kennel name. So it's it's kind of named after Neptune in a lot of ways. Um, he's a really a dark horse, and she has phenomenal puppies that now make up most of my team. Um, last month there was a mandatory rookie meeting for the Iditarod. Can you talk talk to us about what you learned while at this meeting? Yeah, that. Uh, very good it's it's interesting because it very much obviously I have you know some I'm not exact target audience have experience thousand mile race you know having run the best and a, a lot of that is uh, intended for people who have been a thousand miles because there is a, a very big difference when you're qualifying races which is the longest is usually 300 but he goes and does the the Kovac 440, then they'd have a 440 mile race, but it's you know, quite different. Once you hit that 700 mile mark, it's the dogs start behaving a lot differently and and react. Excuse me, react to situation. So it's a, really a, a deep learning curve uh, on what to expect in a mile race. So uh, it's so it was you know intended. You know, it's laid out for people who've never done a thousand miles, but I still got a lot of really valuable information from it. They had, you know, Aaron Burmeister came in and uh, donated a bunch of his time, spent two full days there. Uh, and one of those, he talked for about like, four hours, six hours to somewhere in there. They were pretty long days, but uh, four to six hours, Aaron talked to us about, you know, nutrition different methods to snack our dogs on the trail really kind of advanced stuff that we i obviously know how to feed my dogs i know when they need snacks but aaron's been doing it for 35 years and he's gotten 15 i did or something you know so he really has a just he's forgotten more dogs than most of us in there know about um really valuable from him i actually learned a lot from his meeting is very thorough. And then the head vet, Stu Nelson spoke, um, quite extensively about, you know, veterinary things to watch for and how to treat them. As well. And that was obviously very beneficial. And then the second day we actually go out to burn halters. Probably, who's a Yukon quest champion and a long time. I did her up and, uh, he hosts us all out at his place and has, uh, a panel of pictures come out. I think we had Matt Baylor and Travis Beals and Sarah Stokey and Darren uh, Hendrickson and Cindy Abbott all out talking. And they basically just, it's very in, informal uh, and kind of sit at a table and, and we ask questions and then they discuss the panel amongst each other, you know, everyone, their thoughts on the question. And 
because um, there's a lot of different ways to do things. Every musher, no one does the two things exactly the same. So really valuable, and, and different methods work better for different animals and different dogs. So it's really valuable to have that panel. Do you hear, you know, five or six different ways of doing things? Um, and these these topics are everything from, you know, feeding dogs, kind of cooler use if we use a feet or a tail dragger on our sled and their sleds you know pros and cons of those things uh how a big, a big portion of that is active it's very very difficult to uh kind of overwhelming to pack for checkpoints even for myself um having run a thousand mile runs the class really packing for checkpoints and i'd i'd handled on the club i'd seen the whole trail seven times about three times I've, I've been the whole length of the trail at any point, um, you know, handling for Matt Hall, Ryan Olson on the trail. So I really knew going into the quest, I had a really good visual of what I was getting into, and I packed drop back with Matt, and I really knew, you know, what to pack and what to expect. This is very, Ditterod is very new to me. Um, obviously, I follow it every year, and I know... And I study it, everything, but it's it's a big task to pack for 22 packs and keep them up right in your head. Like when you ask me where the half is, there's all the checkpoints to remember. Try to keep sorted out. For me, a big part of that second day, I'm really asking a lot of questions on, you know, how, what, what they pack and where they pack it on. A couple of them, uh, Travis, Era, as well as, uh, Matt Failer, who I'm pretty good friends with for more years, also brought in a printed out spreadsheet of their exact drop. They said that really gave us a visual on, on, you know, what other mushers are packing out, what worked for them. So it was, a, it was a good weekend. Do you have a plan worked out for the Iditarod yet? Um, yeah, I have a few schedules kind of written out, and what I'm doing kind of. Uh, talking with Grant to write those schedules is talking with friends and really getting a layout of the trail and uh, and doing a lot of research too you know I have a table set up here of a, or a spreadsheet basically the average run time overall average run time between each each leg of the race by uh, calculating the average out of the top 10 mushers over 10 different or five different years um, running a race. So it gives a pretty, you know, it's a, off the top contender speed, which is going to be relatively high, but um, it gives me a pretty good spread of that as far as what to expect of moving. Like I hope they, but, you know, I have, I have an average. I know that over a five year span runtime from yet not a split, not a four hours and 30 minutes or, you know, like that so um collecting data so i really know how fast to expect my dogs to move obviously it's gonna it's gonna change strip year to year occasionally depending on trail conditions but it still gives me an idea of what my run times will look like um and then you know i talked to a lot of my friends about you know camping best places the rest of the trail where you can get water on the trail um things like that and then i've just looked at entire mushers races um on 
the Iditarod website, you know, under the archives and see what their run times are and where they stop and what the stop times are. And if you look at that uh, and really uh, kind of dig into it to see what the moving speed was, average was, you can see that if, you know, this 70-mile run took them 10 hours while they probably ran four hours, then rested three hours another four hours and uh you can kind of get all the instructions based on overall trail time overall stop time and things so i can actually map out mushrooms and time races like i have you know scott smiths and several other mushrooms who kind of have dogs similar to mine training methods their mine whole is written out and what their schedule is and then i'll you know have an idea i'm gonna do my so yeah do have I have a few different schedules written out. We don't have the exact solid final one done, but it's getting there. Can you talk to us about the gear and your dogs need out on the trail? Yeah, so we have, uh, you guys probably know the mandatory gear. You've researched, you know, apps, snowshoes, uh, cooker with a three gallon capacity fuel for that set of booty uh food for the dog food for the dogs set of food for myself um and uh all of the in a cold sleep bag, of course um so those are all really important things in my opinion the axe and the sleeping bag are going to be the most really most important thing obviously and then food for the dogs but part human gear for myself those things are very important good sleeping bag really priceless you know i have a lot of money invested in a you know 40 below true 40 below rated down bag really a piece of equipment you don't want to skimp on you get stuck in a storm or something you want to know you can crawl into your your bag and be safe um and then the dog's needs it's just kind of depend on the distance of the the leg you know if it's a 35 miles to my next resupply probably have a couple sets of snacks and a, a meal of just in case a full meal in this sled but not a lot of food overall you know a couple snacks and one meal versus a dog from uh say 90 miles or 80 miles on the trail um and i'm gonna have probably two meals in my bed, one to feed on the trail, one to back up, and probably five snacks, which are all, when I say snack, seven snacks, I mean a set of 14 to 16 chunks of uh, raw meat that's been pre-cut into little chunk, individual for all the dogs. That way I can give them, you know, a snack or a little bit of fuel every two or two, three, three hours on the trail. I can get snack and keep their energy level up and then a couple of so, um, yeah, their needs are going to really vary. And it's also going to vary with temperature. You know, I was on the quest and I from Dawson to Pelly, which is 210 miles. I had just so much stuff you have to pack for that long run because it's not only is it 210 miles of resupply, it's also uh, 50 below zero. So the dogs eat a lot of food when it's 50 below zero. So my sub belly weight, uh, not exaggerating, 253 pounds worth of sleeping. Dawson have so much, and most of that's just dog 
There's a lot of food for the dogs, you know, the sets of snacks, um, probably half a dozen meals uh, for the dogs, and then lots of fuel for our cooker because we're melting a lot of snow or on the trail we don't a lot of those checkpoints don't provide water so we have to melt melt snow with that cooker and that takes uh, about a quart of heat or isopropyl alcohol to do that so it you know we might have a gallon and a half of fuel on the long runs whereas like i said if i have a nice 40 mile run between then it won't be that much, but we always, the biggest thing is we always pack extra. We always have, that's why in mandatory gear, you have that food for yourself and food for your dogs. Unless you had an emergency situation on the trail, when you get into the checkpoint, you have to, you need to have that emergency food because that shows you, you know, packed enough, it shows the race, you packed enough that your dogs and you weren't going to go starving out. A big incident did happen. If obviously, if a windstorm comes, get stuck, and there is an emergency situation, you're not going to be in trouble if you come without that food because that, that's what it's for. But if it's 35 degrees and sun, and there are no major incidents on the trail, you will be penalized if you don't have that uh, that extra food. Always, always need to know that that's enough to take care of our an emergency unplanned situation. So we were wondering about the dogs. How long or far can they run without a break? I'm sorry, how long what? How long or far can the dogs go without a break? Um, it really uh, really depends on the dogs and how they're trained and how the mushrooms trained. So, you know, they can, if a team is trained up properly, uh, they can do 100 miles or more up to 120 miles in one you know one push they can do theoretically they could do 200 miles running but if you do that they're going to be really tired after and it's really hard to get energy back uh, so most mushers when they're on the trail even the dogs can easily go 70 to 100 miles at a time we're going to try to break it up into shorter that we're going to try to do usually about 40 to 50 miles sometimes 35 to 50 miles, depending on on trail conditions um, because it's really easy for dogs to recover from that rest you know if you only go 40 miles probably only takes four hours of rest and they're back to 100 percent you go 150 miles or 100 miles in one go well they're going to need a good eight hours maybe even 12 hours and they're still not going to be quite as as energetic as they were before we do the long run so you know toward the end of the race in certain spots you'll see this front runner and kind of top contenders in this year's race making what we call a move where they they do something like that where instead of stopping at a checkpoint after 40 miles they they go straight through and they get 80 miles in one run and it gains them four years and and it, those, those moves are usually executed towards the end of the race when the, the dogs are getting close to the finish line. Because if you do that too early, like I said, they're gonna they're never going to quite be back to 100%. Um, so we, we're we really conscious about when we uh, put rest week. Um, it's going to be at the right time, and the dogs have to be able... A lot of times it'll be on the way to White Mountain because they get to White Mountain and they have, as you guys probably know, mandatory rest. So the other dogs are getting a long rest, and then they're only seventy-five miles from the finish line after that. So it's a it's it's a good spot in there to uh, 
to make a move. But early in the race, mushers, most mushers are going to try to keep their run four hours or so. That way their dogs can and fully recover and they get to, you know, that halfway point and that 700-mile mark later on with a, a fully energized dog team. Now the next part of our show, we call light, we call lightning round. We have five quick questions for you to answer as quick as you can. All right. Colorado or Alaska? Sorry, you're a little broken up. I can't. I'm not getting. I just got a couple flips there. Colorado or Alaska? Oh, Alaska. There's a reason I I came here and I I've never I came here with a one way ticket and I've. I've only left to visit home. I've never been off to live anywhere else since getting here. Um, Siberian or Alaskan Huskies? What's that? Siberians or Alaskan Huskies? Alaskan Huskies. Uh, or Yukon Quest? Um, uh, I don't know yet. I'll have to tell you after, uh, after the Iditarod which one, one I prefer. Netflix or Hulu? Um, the, I am excited about the Iditarod because we get to see three really different ecosystems and, and kind of climates. In you get to start out in southwest Alaska where it's a little bit more temperate, not as much like the forest, not as much black spruce. And you go up into the interior, which is more like Fairbanks, and along the Yukon River and uh, get to see kind of like at home Fairbanks cold weather and black spruce trees and then go out onto the coast. You start out in the mountains and you go onto the interior and then you get on the coast. So you see three total different things. Whereas the quest, you see one thing the whole time. You see a thousand uh, interior Alaska, Yukon, which is very much... Anyway, next... <laughs> next uh, Netflix or Hulu? Netflix or Hulu? What was that? Netflix or Hulu? Oh, Netflix. So in Alaska, a big thing we battle with is uh, internet connectivity. We don't have it like we have at home in Iowa, where uh, you can get high-speed internet. Uh, your, you know, your smart TV at most of your houses probably has uh, high-speed internet hooked up to it. Here, getting internet is high-speed internet is very difficult. Um, the only option a lot of us have in most places. Um, is satellite internet. Um, like in my neighborhood, the only thing I can get is satellite internet. Satellite internet works, but it's it's very expensive for small amounts of data. I'm talking enough, you know, $70 a month to stream two Netflix movies is what you get out of $70 a month. So it's very expensive and, uh, and not all that fast. So what a lot of us have to use, what I do, I have really good cell service. I have LTE at my house through at and I have an unlimited data plan, so I can uh, stream shows as long as not too many people are on the network. So usually before 4 p.m. and after 10 p.m., but between you know 4 and 4 or 5 p.m. and 10 p.m. when everyone's getting home from work and school and everything, kids are everyone's watching shows on their phones and TVs. I can't. There's not much room to stream much. I can stream pretty well, but the issue with Hulu is it, it uses a different buffering system than Netflix. It buffers constantly, and with, you know, LTE is fast. It's not as fast as high-speed internet, so I guess uh, 
shorten your uh, Hulu doesn't really work up here for a lot of people. It, it uh, buffers too much. So I'm, I'm stuck with that. <laughs> and our last question is, what is your favorite song? Ooh, my favorite song. Let me think for a minute. Um, I listen to a lot of music rail. Mm-hmm. It's hard to pick a single favorite. Let me look at my main playlist here for that I listen to. Um, probably gonna be. Bradley Kilgore uh, to the uh, Bradley Kilgore. Indians by Tyler Tilden. Can you say that again, please? What was that? Can you say that again? Feathered Indians by Tyler Childers. Thank you for the great information. We have enjoyed the experience in having you on our podcast. Good luck in the Iditarod. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Enjoy Iowa. Special thanks to our guest, Riley Dyke for being on our show this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please stop by iTunes and leave us a review. It helps us with our ratings. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or people you would like to hear on the show, email us at huskytalk1 at gmail.com. If we hear from you or, or you leave a comment, we will read it on the show. We would also give credit for Hobo Jim for our theme song, the I Did a Ride Trail song. And now, enjoy a clip from Riley's favorite song, Feathered Indians.